Mithridates VI was the king of Pontus, a mid-sized kingdom situated in what's now northern Turkey. He's also known as Mithridates the Great, and he was one of the few rulers in the ancient world who were brave enough, or maybe crazy enough, to take on the mighty Roman Empire. During his reign between 120 BC and 63 BC, Mithridates conquered vast territories in Asia Minor, taking lands that had belonged to the Romans. But fearsome as the Roman Empire was, throughout most of his rule, Mithridates' real threat came from within. The internal political battles in Pontus were harsh, to say the least. Mithridates' father, the former king, was assassinated. Some say his own wife did it because she wanted to see her sons on the throne. Mithridates himself is suspected of murdering his own brother to eliminate the competition. He carried a dagger with him at all times and slept with a blade under his bed. Legend had it that Mithridates kept a horse, a bull, and a deer in his room at night to warn him if anyone tried to sneak up on him and kill him in his sleep. For Mithridates, there was no greater threat than poison. Poisoning was the weapon of choice for assassins throughout history, and the political battlefield of Pontus was no exception. Like almost all the rulers of his time, young Mithridates had dedicated food tasters who served as human canaries. But even that wasn't enough for Mithridates. After all, he suspected his own mother of trying to poison him, since she favored his brother. So Mithridates set out on one of the most ambitious missions possible, to make himself immune to poisoning by consuming every poison he could find. and welcome to Curious Minds. I'm Shoshi Shmulevitz, and this week's episode, Poisons. Even in Mithridates' time, more than 2,000 years ago, poisoning was nothing new. Poison or venom is a natural weapon that was adopted by countless animals and plants, from snakes to bees to poisonous mushrooms. There's clear evidence that prehistoric hunters knew about poisons and used them for hunting. The effectiveness of venoms and poisons is clear just from the terror they invoke in us. One of the most basic human fears, for example, is the fear of being bitten by a snake, a fear that's embodied even in our most basic mythological stories, like the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. This primal fear might be explained by the fact that death by poisoning is long and painful, or maybe because it gives such harmless-looking animals as tiny bugs, for example, a surprising advantage over us humans. CM Pod is proudly sponsored by Outbrain. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably used Outbrain today. You just didn't realize it until now. Outbrain is the service that recommends which stories to check out next when you're browsing your favorite sites. Didn't know there was a service for that? Ever wondered why you see the stories that you see on sites like CNN, ESPN, and People Magazine? 
It's because Outbrain uses algorithms to figure out what you might like to see next based on your interests and other readers like you. So, the next time you reach the end of a story on your favorite site and you're thinking about what's next, remember, Outbrain thinks of that for you. Outbrain. We could all use a little direction. Visit outbrain.com for more info. As a murder weapon, poison has obvious advantages over other methods. Poisoning is a quiet and efficient method of assassination. Most poisons take a while to do their work, so by the time the victim begins to feel the effects of the poison, the murderer might already be miles away from the scene of the crime. Poison was also the preferred weapon of the female assassin. A woman might not be able to overpower her victim with a knife or sword, but a few drops of poison in a goblet or cooking pot would easily do the job. From the beginning, Mithridates VI regarded poisoning as his greatest threat, so he fervently researched the known poisons and their antidotes. One way he did that was by executing criminals using different poisons to study their effects on the human body. He also collaborated with other scholars and rulers. Sometimes other kings would send him a messenger carrying a letter and a package. The letter would say that the messenger was a criminal sentenced to death, and the package contained a poison or a new antidote for Mithridates to test on the poor guy. At some point, Mithridates discovered that by ingesting small quantities of certain poisons, he was able, over time, to build natural immunity to those poisons. Evidently, Mithridates had a taste for the theatrical, and he enjoyed demonstrating his immunity to his guests. Author Adrian Mayer, who wrote a biography of Mithridates, describes these spectacles. Quote, he often staged dramatic performances to demonstrate his remarkable ability to dine on poison-laced meat and wine. Such evenings not only provided entertainment, but also enhanced the Poison King's carefully created reputation of invincibility. The evening might feature a poisoning of someone condemned to die for a heinous crime— so, as the guests take their place on couches, an archer shoots a poison arrow at the criminal, the arrow zipping over the heads of the guests. Mithridates provided learned commentary as everyone observes the result of the poison. With grand gestures and banter, Mithridates awes the guests by swallowing a drop of snake venom. For the climax of the evening, the Poison King invites his guests to salt his own plate or wine cup with poison. With a debonair smile, the Poison King raises his goblet in a toast. End quote. Legend has it that Mithridates eventually came to regret his immunity to poison. When he was defeated on the battlefield by Roman general Pompey the Great, he tried to commit suicide to avoid the shame of captivity. He and his two daughters ingested poison. It was lethal to the two girls, but not to Mithridates. He resorted to asking one of his officers to stab him with a sword. According to another legend, Mithridates was able to find a cure that could counter the effect of any poison known to man. The cure was called Mithridate. And it was a complex blend of dozens of ingredients, garlic, cinnamon, and a bunch of other stuff. 
But what became of the fabled miracle cure? It is said that Pompey the Great found the formula, written in Mithridates' own handwriting, and he brought it back with him to Rome. The formula was translated to Latin and was passed from one generation to the next for almost 2,000 years, with little changes that were added over time. It's impossible to know if the original Mithridate was as effective as the legend says, but garbled versions of the mythical medicine were still used by physicians even into the 19th century. Speaking of Rome, there's an interesting story about the demise of the great Roman Empire in the middle of the first millennium. Now, this theory is hotly debated among historians, but some say the fall of the Roman Empire might be blamed on lead poisoning on a massive scale. Here's why. A lot of the water pipes used by the Romans were made of lead because its low melting point made it really easy to bend and shape. And the lead from the pipes might have leached into the drinking water. Now, the symptoms of lead poisoning are mostly cognitive. It begins with diminishing mental skills and ends in hyperactivity and loss of libido. If you've ever heard of, say, Nero, you know where this is headed. The proponents of the lead poisoning theory point to the madness of some of the emperors and the decreased fertility of the Roman population as evidence for this theory. But the opponents of the theory speculate that the calcium in the water might have accumulated on the inside of the lead pipes, acting as a sort of sealant and keeping the lead from leaching into the water. Any unusual behavior by the emperors might be better explained by just drunkenness and your standard run-of-the-mill power craze. One of the most popular poisons throughout history was arsenic. Its use was so common in the courts of kings and princes that it became known as the inheritance powder or the poison of kings. Why was arsenic so popular? Well, a few reasons. First, in its compound form, arsenic trioxide, it's colorless, tasteless, and odorless, especially when mixed in wine or water. The second reason was its potency. A pea-sized portion is enough to kill an adult human. And the third reason arsenic's so popular? When used in relatively large quantities, the symptoms of arsenic poisoning look like cholera, which, by the way, is not pretty. It's swelling of the face, acute stomach pain and convulsions, vomiting, diarrhea, internal bleeding, and then a coma. Death comes within a day or two. Taken in small doses, arsenic poisoning manifests as chronic and gradual nerve damage and even cancer. So the arsenic trifecta, invisible, tasteless, and potent, is what makes it the perfect murder weapon. One of the more famous murder cases involving arsenic was that of Lady Charlotte Elizabeth Ursinus. Frau Ursinus was the wife of a high-ranking Prussian counselor named Theodore Ursinus. When they were married in 1779, Charlotte was 19 and Theodore was a much older man. Rich as Theodore was, there was obviously little love in their marriage, and Charlotte took a much younger lover, a Dutch officer named Roguet. 
1797, Charlotte's lover fell ill and died within a few days. The physicians who treated Captain Roguet noted how devoted Charlotte was to him, staying near his bed at all times and feeding him with her own hands. The cause of death was said to be tuberculosis. Three years later, in 1800, Theodore Ursinus passed away unexpectedly. He certainly wasn't a young man, but just the day before, he was said to be in perfect health. The official cause of death was a stroke. A year later, Charlotte's aunt, an elderly lady by the name of Christine Witte, died and left her entire fortune to Charlotte. Like Roguet and Theodore, Aunt Witte died suddenly, almost overnight, while Charlotte was visiting her home. Two sudden deaths might be a coincidence, but three? The people around Charlotte began to suspect foul play. But keep in mind, Frau Ursinus was a noblewoman, respected in Prussian high society, and to launch such an accusation without any real evidence, that was unthinkable. Now, Charlotte had a servant, Benjamin Klein. They had an argument, and a few days later, Klein became ill. Given his mistress's reputation, Klein was understandably suspicious. When Charlotte offered him some boiled rice the day after, he refused to eat the dish, and he noticed that she carefully removed the plate and put it where no one else could get to it. The next day, Klein went through Charlotte's cabinets, and there he found a small parcel labeled arsenic. The next day, Lady Ursinus came to visit the sick servant and brought him a little get-well gift, a couple of dried prunes. Klein thanked her and took the prunes, but he never ate them. Instead, he took them to a pharmacist for testing, and the prunes were laced with arsenic. Klein took the poison fruit to the police station, and Charlotte Ursinus was arrested. This episode is sponsored by Augury. Augury. Machines talk. We listen. Augury's technology is called predictive maintenance. It's built upon a simple principle. Every mechanical system produces unique sounds and noises. By attaching sensors to machines, Augury software can analyze subtle changes in these sounds and diagnose and predict future malfunctions before they occur. This analysis is done in real time using a smartphone. Augury is growing and looking for great engineers and developers who share their same passion and creativity for smart technologies. Has anyone ever told you that you're the smartest person they know? If so, Augury wants to get to know you. Visit cmpod.net and click Augury's banner to submit your resume for positions in New York or in Haifa, Israel. The police exhumed the bodies of Theodore Ursinus and Aunt Vita, and sure enough, they both showed distinct signs of poisoning. Here's the description taken from a magazine article written only a few years after the events took place. Quote, the corpses were found dried as if baked, or as if they were mummies of a thousand years old. 
The skin of the abdomen was so tough that it resisted the surgeon's knife, and the soft part of the body had assumed the appearance of hard leather. The hands, fingers, and feet of the old man were drawn together as by spasms. His skin resembled parchment, and the stomachs of both bore every trace of injury and inflammation which had reduced them to an inseparable mass. End quote. But, and here's the most important part, there were no traces of arsenic found in the corpses. Chemists in the 19th century had no way to detect the minute traces of arsenic that would be enough to kill a person. There was ample proof that Charlotte bought large quantities of arsenic before each suspicious death, but that still didn't prove that she was guilty. You see, arsenic had other, more mundane uses— It was used as a pesticide and as a skin whitener. Upper-class women would ingest very small doses of arsenic to make their skin paler. That was the beauty standard of the time. So there wasn't anything particularly suspicious about a woman buying arsenic at the pharmacy. There was, of course, the small matter of the poisoned prunes. But Charlotte had an explanation for that, too. She claimed that she was so lonely and depressed, having both her husband and her lover die on her so suddenly, that she contemplated suicide by arsenic. However, she was unsure as to the proper dosage needed to kill herself, so she experimented on her servant using small, non-lethal doses to find out. The judge was obviously reluctant to believe Charlotte's tale, But he couldn't convict the noble lady for murder since there was no definitive proof. So Charlotte was sentenced to 30 years under house arrest instead of the hanging rope. Her imprisonment was, by all accounts, quite pleasant. Frau Charlotte had a large penthouse all to herself. She was allowed to bring all her furniture and clothing with her, and she even had guests and large parties in her oversized cell. She was also allowed to keep all the money she received from her deceased husband and aunt. When Charlotte was finally released from her prison, she was accepted back into Prussian high society and lived a happy and comfortable life until her death of old age. These kinds of infuriating stories of unpunished murders were relatively common, especially in the 19th century largely because of the rising popularity of life insurance. Life insurance is a great economic motive for murder since it puts a prize on the head of almost anyone with a large policy. So poisoning by arsenic was becoming a plague and something had to be done about it urgently. But before we get into how the arsenic problem was solved, let's talk about the effects of arsenic on the body. This is a question fit for my co-host and science nerd, Ron Levy. So, how does arsenic kill people? Slowly and painfully. Oh, okay, yes, I know what you meant. First, keep in mind that as the chemical processes in living cells are so complex and delicate that almost anything can be considered poisonous. Paracelsus, a 16th century alchemist and physician, coined a great phrase. He said, all things are poison and nothing is without poison. Only the dose makes a thing not a poison. 
that is, in large enough doses, anything can become lethal. Even water, if drunk in large enough quantity, is a poison to the body, and a considerable amount of people have died from water poisoning over the years. So, back to arsenic. The key word here is ATP, short for adenosine triphosphate. ATP is a molecule which is found in cells of every organism, from animals to insects to plants, and in humans as well, of course. ATP can be viewed as a sort of a natural battery. The body extracts energy from digested food or stored fat, but this energy has to be delivered to where it's needed. Muscle cells, nerve cells, liver cells, etc. So evolution has created this amazing mechanism for delivering energy throughout the body, which is the ATP molecule. The energy from the food is stored in the chemical bonds of the ATP molecules. When the cell needs energy, special enzymes break down the chemical bonds, thereby releasing the stored energy in the ATP molecule. Now, how does arsenic interrupt this process? There is a chemical called phosphate, which is crucial to the process of creating ATP molecules. Arsenic, or rather a compound called arsenate, which contains an arsenic atom, is chemically very similar to phosphate and so competes with phosphate in the same chemical processes. The major difference between these two is that when arsenate is involved in the chemical process, no ATP molecules are created. If no ATP molecules are created, this means the body's cells start to starve for energy. And since ATP is used all over the body, and especially in energy-hungry organs such as the liver, nerves, and gut, the damage to the body is catastrophic. It's a systemic failure, which is why arsenic is so dangerous. Thank you, Ron. I think. Ooh. Anyway, as we said earlier, there was a lot of pressure on scientists to come up with ways of detecting arsenic poisoning in the body, even after death. There were already several methods of detecting arsenic. One such method was developed by the chemist Valentin Rose as a part of the Charlotte Arsenis trial. Another common method was invented by the German physician Samuel Hahnemann, who was also, by the way, the guy who created homeopathy. Hahnemann discovered a way to mix the fluid sample, blood, for example, with two other chemicals. If the blood contained arsenic, the mix would turn yellow. The problem was, neither of these methods could detect small quantities of arsenic. The turning point came in 1832, when the chemist James Marsh was called to testify in a murder case. A man was accused of murdering his grandfather by mixing arsenic in his coffee. Marsh extracted some fluids from the corpse and applied Hahnemann's method on it. The fluid turned yellow, but... The arsenic residue in the dead man's body was so small that by the time Marsh could show it to the court in the trial itself, the mix had already degenerated and the yellow tint was almost gone. The defense attorneys managed to convince the judge that the chemical test was not sufficiently accurate and the accused murderer went free. Naturally, Marsh was very upset and more so when he later learned that the criminal had actually confessed to the murder. He decided to find a new way of detecting arsenic in the human body. 
It took a few years of experimenting, but he finally managed to develop a test for arsenic in human tissue that was much more accurate than its predecessors. This method is known as the Marsh test, and it's still used today. Marsh's discovery led to an acute drop in arsenic poisonings, as more and more potential poisoners could be revealed. It is interesting to note that the Marsh test can also provide interesting explanations to some past historical enigmas. Arsenic has some more benign uses, such as in the color and pigment industry, but it's still highly poisonous. And historians now know that where there's dementia and other unusual mental disorders, it might be a good idea to look for the presence of arsenic. For example, there are those who speculate that the famous madness of Vincent Van Gogh and the blindness of Claude Monet were actually the result of exposure to arsenic in the green emerald paint that they used. And it's possible that the death of Napoleon Bonaparte in the prison on St. Helens Island was caused by the arsenic that was released into the air from the paint on the walls. When hair samples from Napoleon's body were tested, they contained three times more arsenic than normal. But it is possible that the arsenic was absorbed post-mortem from the soil that Napoleon was buried in. The Marsh test put an end, or at least it greatly reduced, the use of arsenic as a murder weapon. But murder by poison certainly didn't stop. Arsenic was just replaced by more sophisticated poisons. Cyanide in particular gained notoriety when Hitler and Eva Braun swallowed cyanide pills in their bunker in Berlin, and Hermann Goering eluded the hangman's noose in a similar fashion. Even today, poisoning is still a common weapon in political assassinations. A well-known example is that of Viktor Yushchenko, a Ukrainian leader who was outspoken in his opposition to Russia. He was poisoned under mysterious circumstances by a substance called dioxin. He survived, but he was left disfigured. Another Russian dissident, former KGB agent Alexander Litvinenko, was also poisoned. He died after eating sushi in a London restaurant. His last supper contained a large quantity of polonium-210, a lethal radioactive substance. These examples might be just the tip of the iceberg. Knowing what we know about the history of poisons, it might be that there were many more political assassinations than we even expected. Deaths that we assumed were natural, but were in fact murder most foul. But who knows? Maybe future historians, equipped with more advanced tests and new perspectives, will see today's events in a different light. That's all for today's episode of Curious Minds. Visit our website, www.cmpod.net, for the complete archive of past episodes, as well as the forum, RSS feed, and links to all the social networks. 
Subscribe to the show on iTunes or almost every other podcasting app on Android or iPhone. You can also subscribe to our mailing list and get an update every time a new episode is available. We would love to hear your feedback and ideas for future episodes. Let us know what you think at info at cmpod.net. If you're an advertiser interested in learning more about the podcast and becoming a sponsor, contact us at info at cmpod.net. Curious Minds is written and produced by Ron Levy. Hosted by me, Shoshi Shmulevitz, and Kelly O'Loughlin. Technical production by Alex Benish. Nir Sayag is the sound editor. And Donnie Timor is our business manager. This episode was recorded at TLV1 Studios in Tel Aviv. It's also copyrighted. Maybe you need just like to do the the karaoke version of it. Maybe you should just sing it. No, I don't sing, but you could sing it. <laughs> no, it would be weird if I just started singing. Like, <laughs> poison, poisons. <laughs> Nailed it. Poison or venom is a neutral, not a neutral weapon, a natural weapon. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm.